Hey, drunk mythology friends. I'm Kate. And I'm Other Jen. And we're the Drunk Mythology Gals. It's not Dracula anymore. It's Mythology Gals. (laughs) Drunk Mythology Gals. I know. It's it it made me nervous, you know, having yeah. to be like, okay, it's mythology, not Dracula anymore. <laughs> but what a month October was. It was so much fun. I mean, it was it was actually very challenging <laughs> to uh that's an understatement. <laughs> to get this shit done every day. But yeah, <laughs> we fucking did it, man. We did. We, we absolutely AFDI'd did it. <laughs> Uh, yes, we actually <laughs> fucking did it. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. But you know what this means? We have a what? lot of news to catch up on. Oh. Oh. A- and what better <laughs> way to do it than with an episode of Hot Drunk News? You always poke my rage with these. <laughs> and I <laughs> picked specific stories to do it with oh, today. You know what kind of week I've had. Oh, yes. And I fully intend to exploit it. So today's I, yeah. today's stories include road construction strikes again. Oh. You're really going to drink that? And never gamble with a Roman because fuck them. Oh, okay. So really going to drink that? <laughs> I, I, um. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know. Oh my God, Kate! I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm so afraid of this episode. <laughs> and and some of our newer listeners, n- newer listeners might not uh, know enough to be afraid yet. But just so oh, they do dear. know, um, uh, this is where we do a little news roundup of uh, anything that's relevant within. Oh, I don't know the past six months because that's about the right. speed of historical and archaeological news. Right, I'd say. And it's- and it's stuff that's usually relevant to the time period when mythology was at the height. Yeah. And sometimes so. we like take little side steps here and there. Like we did one that featured a dinosaur in someone's backyard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. That was, um, yeah. Just because it was so freaking cool. <laughs> of course. Yeah. But, you know, mythology, whether it's Greek or Norse or whatever it is, like, you know, we even have mythology today, as we discussed in the last episode. We, yeah, everybody yeah. has myths. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah, hot drunk news. We're doing nope. it. Okay. Um, after hearing these highlights, I am regretting my beverage choice. I, how often do I say that? <laughs> I, <laughs> I can pause, I, we can do yeah. the magic of. Pausing. No, no, because you're, you're going to need it. I'm just saying. No, okay. So the suffering for Odin is the reason it, it, they go hand in hand. The right. reason that I have I have water today because I've had some some very challenging things I've been fielding this week, and I am legitimately concerned that if I take alcohol and Tamper those inhibitions that I will and, and sound logical reasoning as to why I shouldn't throw my entire career away. <laughs> I, I I will I will I, I am legitimately worried today that I will say or do something that I will severely regret. <laughs> I, yeah. I just have to ride through a few more days here 
and, yeah. and, and all will pan out one way, one way or, or another. another. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. Jinx. Um, <laughs> so th- that's my Odin suffering. Well, uh, I, as I, well I, as the logic behind your drink choice. Okay. Well, I yeah. have, I, I have Oops. Odin suffering that yeah. you're just going to be like, why do you even try? <laughs> so you've heard my history with earbuds, right? Like, oh, oh Lord, please. Yeah. I like, I want to buy you, you a, like, I want to gift you some AirPods, but I know it's pointless. <laughs> right. Like, uh, so Eric bought me these really lovely iPods when we got the puppies, and the puppies promptly ate one of them. I replaced one of them, and then they ate both of them and the case. So, right. yeah. And then I got, like, another cheapo pair, and they ate those. And then I got another pair, a cheapo pair, and I lost one of them permanently. And I'm like, well, <laughs> fuck that. And it's just been a long series of either defective eating puppy eating or losing right and i finally was like you know what i i ha- i am down to one pair of <laughs> cheapo wireless buds that sound terrible and but at least you know they're wireless but yeah i i misplaced them oh shit <laughs> and i was like are you kidding me but i still had my super cheapo jet blue earbuds that the were wired yeah they probably cost what 20 cents to make i don't even know but you know i got them <laughs> years ago when they were still offering like free wired <laughs> plug-in right. ear earbuds uh, yes. uh, headphones and i was using them and i was pruning back the garden for the winter and <laughs> i Uh-oh. i snipped right through the cord oh shit cake where you like <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> oh, oh. If I ever get an alien name, it will be she who cut she who is destroyer of earbuds. Air, air yes, something of that nature. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's what? Are you- great that I am drinking Jack. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that um, that's yeah my suffering and my drink. Yeah. Okay. So. We'll head on with the disclaimer, which it's been so long, I forgot to take notes to make it witty. <laughs> not that you were ever but great at taking notes before. <laughs> I, I was getting there. You were, you were getting there. You hadn't reached OG level yet. Of course but, not. Right. Yeah. Um, so do not drink and drive cars, chariots, eight-legged horses, chewed up AirPods. <laughs> um, work emails. Work fiascos. Uh, what else did we talk about? <laughs> That's about. I, I have no short-term memory left. So yeah, you know what? Let's yeah. just get started. Yes. A long time ago, like maybe two months or some shit. <laughs> Feels like forever ago. <laughs> All right. So our first story is road construction strikes again. Yay. And this story is in honor of friend of the podcast, Frederick, from Digging Up Ancient Aliens. Hi, Frederick! 
So remember- was that a little too enthusiastic there? <laughs> <laughs> it's too late for him now. He's part it's of the family. Late. It's too late. <laughs> um, remember how he talked about how archaeological sites in Sweden were spotty because of the conditions of the soil and water table, pH levels, etc. Like some places oh, yeah. had really good preservation and others didn't. Right. Yes. Okay. I found that fascinating. Same. So I don't know if this is one of the places he was talking about, but last week, literally last week, a story in the Sacramento Bee, and I don't know why the Sacramento Bee is popping into my archaeology (laughs) but whatevs, take it and run. Um, They had a rather surprising story about, sorry, they had a story about a rather surprising discovery that had been made in Vastmanland, Sweden. Okay. Approximately. 90 miles from Stockholm. Oh. Okay. And I did a little Google Map clip. <gasps> you gave us a map. I did. It's to scale. It's Google. It is Google, which means <laughs> it's to scale. <laughs> so I couldn't, um, in order to like get Vastmanland and uh, Stockholm and whatever, I couldn't yeah. quite narrow in on the like exact site. Sure. It, it would have required like several more screenshots. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Okay. But this is from this map. It's essentially west of Stockholm. Yes. And the sites are kind of at the bottom of the red dots outlining Vastmanland. Okay. And I do apologize for however I am pronouncing it. I might be insulting somebody's <laughs> mother in Swedish without realizing it. And I do apologize. Oh, Frederick's going to let us know. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I'm probably going to insult all of his cousins with the way I pronounce the next couple of names. Oh. <laughs> so technically, the find was near uh, Verbi or Nortuna, somewhere outside Koping. Okay. You're welcome, Frederick. I hope you got some sort of existential satisfaction out of my butchering of all these Swedish names. (laughs) In some roundabout way, I'm I'm preferring to look at it as payback for trolling us with the stone. Oh, he so trolled us. Yeah. If anybody has not listened to the episode that did it drop on Halloween? Monday. Yeah, Monday. (laughs) It dropped on Halloween. Um, he uh, he was just such a good sport. Oh, Kate, yeah. Kate just said, hey, come on the show. Don't prep anything. Don't even look at the notes. We're just going to blindside you just like I do to other Jen. <laughs> and he's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he, he totally trolled us. And it was lot. beautiful. <laughs> it was perfect. We love so- it. Yeah. Basically, this all started with a road widening project, specifically along the E18. Okay. I guess Frederick might know what that is. It It's the name of like the highway that they're widening. And, you know, if you think back to some of our other hot drunk news stories, a lot of them had to do with the railroad uh, expansion an extension project in the UK, like, you know, oh, right. Yes. They, as they ex, you know, excavate for the railroad foundations, they keep digging up. Oh, look, there were more Romans in Britain than we thought. <laughs> right. Um, so, and it seems like, except when uh, digging in Europe, it seems like there's a nine in 10 chance you're going to end up turning up some priceless historical shit buried in the ground. Oh like, my goodness. Who knows? Maybe there's a mastodon in your vegetable garden. <laughs> 
Anyway, there's this big field that is part of the road construction excavation site where archaeologists from the Swedish National Historical Museum Agency have unearthed somewhere around a hundred graves. A hundred? A hundred. Oh, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. And these graves date from 600 CE to 1000 CE. So kind of right smack in the middle of the Iron Age and also kind of at the height of, you know, Vikings and... uh, Oh, you know, Norse mythology sort of really coalescing. Fenrir. Yes. yes. Yeah, Fenrir. Thankfully, no (laughs) graves for Fenrir found. Yay. Because, yeah, he's he's never. Yeah. He's in Raleigh. He's in Raleigh, North Carolina. (laughs) There you go. I'm writing that. I'm writing that myth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's fine. And, you know, he he can't bring about uh, Ragnarok because he won't swallow the sun unless it's wrapped in bacon or peanut butter. Yeah. (laughs) Or processed cheese. That's another option. So anyway, I've included a picture from the uh, Archaeologerna, which is the organization running this uh, uh, dig. So this is just in general the kind of site. Okay you know, the field, and you can see in the distance, the road. Yes. It looks like just like a, well, it just barely across the top of the picture. There's the road, like you said, mm-hmm. and it looks like just a flat area of dirt with a bunch of rocks. Yeah. Uh, I will say there is a pattern to the very center of the picture. There's a square with a mm-hmm. big rock right in the middle of the square. Yeah. But other than that, it, almost looks random. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of it might be the angle of this photo. And part of it is like, when I was, um, when I was like in Greece on the island of Crete and going around to all these, you know, archaeological sites, at first you're like, yeah, this is just a pile of rocks. But then you start to see the outlines of things. And after Mm. looking at it, time after time and walking it and just kind of being there, you start to understand, oh, I see. This is how the space is. This is where that wall would have been. And that rock is part of that. Like you start to see, like, it's almost like one of those 3D eye pictures, like where you stare at it long enough, the pattern pops. Oh, right. Yes. So, you know, you and I are like, well, there's a square thing of rocks and a couple of other piles, but I don't know what else this is. But somebody who yeah. does this for a living will be like, oh, well, that's a tuba, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like Frederick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, so far, so good. Put a pin in that. Okay. In some episode prior to drunk Dracula gals. I can't remember. Thanks, Dracula. I yeah. talked about how, you know, over tens of thousands of years, people would return to abandoned ancestral villages for the burial grounds to bury their recently departed and keep their family together. And all I can remember is that I was talking about this in, connected, in connection to my theory of the Garden of Eden and the younger Dryas final ice age around 10,000 BCE. Um, (laughs) listeners, if you find the episode, I feel like it was over the past summer, I guess. Let us know. Um, This does not sound familiar to me. Are you sure this isn't one you drafted and we never recorded? (laughs) I don't know. But uh, so basically, it's possible. But basically, to sum it up, 
So we know the Garden of Eden myth. There was this wonderful time of peace and plenty and Adam and Eve and all the animals and everything was in harmony, never had right. to lift a finger, blah, blah, blah. And then they get kicked out and shit gets rough. Right. And thus is the rest of history. So I think there's actually archaeological and climatological evidence, not for the Garden of Eden, but for a human historical tradition that might have accounted for it. So between 12,000 and 10,000 BCE, there was this amazing little uh, spell of perfect weather on planet Earth, basically. Like, you know, we'd been having ice ages and then things would thaw and then another ice age and things would thaw. Like that's how a lot of our landscape was formed. That's how we find all kinds of uh, we do stratigraphy with, you know, classifying, you know, archaeological sites um, and prehistoric sites as we find them. But okay. what happens is when there is, you know, a good climate, there's a lot of food. If there's enough food and ease of food, the population grows. And when the population sure. grows, you can get into things like specialization, like making bead jewelry, like pottery, like hey, sculpture. You- did my economics professor put you up to this? No. And I know nothing about econ. Trust you are me. giving an econ lesson right now in well, supply and demand and surplus and yeah. Yeah. So, but this is, this is, uh, this is real. So, and, you know, they found um, evidence of more complex religious rituals and, you know, just a society yeah. that was growing and developing. But then around 10,000 BCE, Mother Nature was like, psych, oh. I'm going to give you another little mini ice age. Damn. Yeah, bitch. <laughs> and suddenly there was no time for frivolous pursuits and there was starvation and Mm -hmm. the human population dwindled and these amazing elaborate, you know, villages and even towns couldn't be maintained and people became quasi nomadic again. You know, they migrated trying to find more fertile ground, trying to follow the animals, but they would return to bury their ancestors. Wow. And so if you think about it and you think about the way you know, we talked about mythology and the kernel of truth that might be at the core of stories like, you know, Leia right. and the Swan or Narcissus. Right. right. My theory is the Garden of Eden was an oral history carried down 10,000 years. And we, you know what happens with a game of telephone over like five people. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, you have these stories and you have these people continually returning to the place of their ancestors. And these ancestors are revered as having lived in this amazing, wonderful time. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Garden of Eden doesn't sound so far-fetched as right. an allegorical representation of a real human historical event right. or period. Yeah. Now, the reason... I talk about this in relation to this story is that there, um, so you have the burials between 600 and 1000 CE, but then two to 300 years later, some people returned to bury more people (gasps) at the site. 
Oh, okay. So we're talking 1200 to 1300 CE, the tail end of the Viking-ish era. You're starting to see uh, Genghis Khan make his way across Central Asia. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're getting into the uh, Middle Ages, high Middle okay. Ages. You know, okay. the Crusades, all that stuff. So, gotcha. And Christianity was getting a pretty firm grip in, you know, it had finally gotten to the northernmost re- reaches of Europe and you know, Ireland and uh, Scandinavia, et cetera. But they found three stone tombs. Oh. Um, yep. Three stone tombs that were buried between two to 300 years later. Wow. In one of these tombs, researchers found a large quantity of beautiful glass beads. <gasps> I couldn't find any pictures of them. I'm so Aww. sorry. I know. I looked. Maybe Frederick can find them. (laughs) But in the other two graves, they found Viking swords. (gasps) Okay, that's just as cool. Right? What's different, though, is now they find, you know, swords have been found in graves, you know, since the beginning. Right. But these swords were stuck into the graves, like plunged into them with handles (gasps) upright. Oh, my goodness. So I just scrolled to the picture yep. and Go ahead you're and describe right. it. Oh my god. Okay, so it's like a pile of rocks. Yep. A pile is being generous. It's like about 3 or 4 rocks that are large and dirt. a whole bunch of dirt mm-hmm. that's kind of holding these rocks together and a knife sticking up like somebody like you said plunged this knife into the dirt or mm-hmm. whatever may have actually been there at the time of the plunging. You know, it it does kind of remind me of the sword in the stone. Yes. Maybe oh he was God, pulling yes. it out of a grave. Oh my God. <gasps> wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is wild. Right? So, so why what's the theory behind this in well, the grave? Hang on, <clears throat> because I have to give you a little bit more background before, okay. because I have set up a thought exercise for us. Oh, fun. Yes, I did maybe. it because, well, it's going to possibly make you angry, hopefully, um, <gasps> but it's also going to just be kind of, you know, what we do. We take things and we yeah. examine them and try and reason through it. So yes. the researchers began to carefully excavate around the swords. And yes. this was pretty cool because with any luck, they'd be able to bring up the whole weapon. Okay. And the, this is a picture of the other sword. And you can see the pommel and the handle mm. and the guard yep. on it a lot more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just included, uh, look at how much fun this person is having digging this shit up. Oh, there's a Like picture. it could be you from behind. She's got blonde hair. Oh, yeah. She's got a blonde braid. <laughs> that could totally be me. <laughs> yep. yep. Maybe we'll do an archaeology, a volunteer archaeology vacation someday. Oh, there Wouldn't that we be go. fun? Frederick, we're coming. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now. <laughs> but in the end, they were unable to unearth, they were able to unearth both swords. Yay. Take a oh, look. Wow. Yep, I'm scrolling, and it's it's extremely weathered, corroded, uh, yeah, corroded. It's not straight anymore. It it looks like something out of a dump, but yeah. obviously this 
is more historical and significant than, you know, something out of the dump. But yeah, this is fascinating. Dumps will become, our dumps will become the index to human history. Give it like a thousand years. So sad. (laughs) Yeah. Now, what's very interesting is only about 20 swords in total from this time period have been found in Vastmanland. Okay. So this find is really unique. Okay. Now, let me add a few more details because I can. (laughs) We're going to get to our little thought exercise. So the graveyard. So you have the two to 300 year, 1200 to 1300 period graves. Then you have the big graveyard. And then the graveyard itself is built on top of an older site, which appears to be some sort of late Bronze Age or early Iron Age farm. Huh. Some of the things found during excavation include cremated human and animal bones, game pieces, bear claws, part of a comb, glass beads, arrowheads, parts of horse equipment, and a poorly preserved uh, boat grave. And a boat grave is where a small boat is used as the tomb for the dead and the grave goods. And the boat is also considered to be part of the grave goods. Okay. Huh. So, we have a Bronze Age farm. Mm-hmm. We have a burial ground on top of it. Yeah. And three more graves with one with glass beads and two with swords. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going on? I'm the what's the area that we're talking about again? How big of a it, it's small uh, it, an it's, acre, two acres? Yeah, maybe I don't I don't know what do they use acres? I didn't I honestly don't know. I think they use <laughs> square meters, but probably. Uh, but it it you know, it doesn't seem like a terribly big site like if you scroll up to the first photo yeah like maybe 50 meters maybe 100 meters I don't know but it doesn't look huge this is definitely not like a football field this is way smaller than a football field it's like maybe a quarter of a football field yeah maybe like a basketball court Mm -hmm. maybe even a little smaller than that yeah like a tennis court. Um, there you go. Maybe about the size of a tennis court. I my first thought when you said there was a farm under mm-hmm. here, the first place my brain went was this was an a site of a massacre. That's very interesting. That was my first thought. That because you said what well, I'm scrolling back to get the the, the description yeah, yeah, yeah. you said. Um, cremated. Mm-hmm. Massacre by fire? Possibly. I mean. That was the first place my brain went. Yeah. And, and that's just the week I've had. <laughs> but you know what? That's fascinating because that didn't occur to me at all. Because cremated human and animal bones. Like cremation was a burial method, but okay, you know, you also have, you know, these tombs. So, and I hadn't thought of that, but that's very cool. See, this is why ideas are good. Yeah. Um, I, okay. So why do you think people would come back two or 300 years later? 
superstition. Um, but yeah, superstition in afterlife mm-hmm. mythology. I I think that's very reasonable. So uh, I was thinking that you know because this was this farm had like it seemed to be you know go from the late bronze age to the early iron age mm-hmm. like i'm wondering if it wasn't some sort of you know quasi military uh you know it might have been a fortification with a farm possibly okay you know because if if they were you know if they had everything from game pieces to arrowheads, um, I, I don't know. It just seems like, you know, they were, uh, one thing I didn't include that I meant to, and I just remembered it now is that there was evidence of bronze and iron, like production on the site of the farm. So that's why I'm like, it could be farm equipment, but it could also be, you know, Hmm. weaponry. I don't know. Right. Right. But, um, and, and the fact that they found combs and glass beads, which are girly quote unquote finds doesn't mean anything because, um, Viking women were often warriors as well. Right. So they found, so, you know, and then it's almost to me like the return and this sort of supra burial, (laughs) on top okay. of the other graves yeah. kind of strikes me as almost a little cultish. <gasps> oh. You know, like yeah. we're hearkening back to our ancestors. They won. They were victorious and we want to be buried with them. Like, yeah. You know, it it's a possibility. Um the yeah. other thing is it could be a reverse harem because you've got beat, you know, one grave <laughs> with beads and two with swords. <laughs> okay. All right. No, yeah, I mean, but have, you know, uh, I'm just it could be Mina, it could <laughs> Mina be all the guys, <laughs> Lucy. Let's be frank, it would be it would totally be Lucy. <laughs> I'm gonna take the beads, Arthur. You get a sword, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but you know, it just it sounds like you know, this is a kind of mystery to me, like, uh, yeah. I, I want to know what's there. <laughs> um, but they are going to do an osteological analysis of the various bone fragments um, okay. and re- human remains found there. So I feel like you introduced that word to me a while ago, but I don't remember what osteoporosis. So, like osteoporosis or an osteopath, you know, oh, uh, right. bone. Bones. Bone so, analysis. Yes. Okay. Osteological analysis. Got it. And so, yeah, we'll put a pin in that. And I am not going to set up a Google alert about it because who knows what the fuck is going to happen to my Google algorithm with that. You got burned by the Georgia oh, Guidestones. Fucking stupid Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, our next story. Oh, You're really yeah. going to drink that? Uh, I, I'm, this is the one I am most afraid of. <laughs> okay. Well, this story isn't exactly news, even by our wibbly wobbly definition of news here at Hot Drunk News, but whatever, okay. I do what I want. Yes. <laughs> so last week we did a belated 
birthday celebration outing for my mom. Um, her ba- her birthday was Labor Day weekend, which was like 105 degrees even here in Long Beach. Right. And we tend to be like a couple degrees cooler than the rest of LA because of the shape of our harbor and the water and all of that. Right. So we weren't going anywhere that wasn't closer to an AC vent. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I did run a 5K on the day when it was only in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Done um, those. <laughs> and... But finally, we all had a day where we could play hooky, and we took mom to do some of the tourist checkbox things you do here in LA, but we haven't done because COVID and reasons. Yeah. The first stop was Rodeo Drive. Yay! Yes. The Rodeo Drive. Yes. Rodeo Drive, like all of Hollywood, is shorter than expected. <laughs> yes. I've been there. I Yeah. I was like, yeah. wait, what? That, what? Huh? That's it? <laughs> yeah. Wait, right? what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to look at all the extravagant and artistic window displays and yes. same with the people. We also saw two bros and a white caddy getting busted for drugs and more Karens per capita than anywhere except uh, perhaps Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> you also have a lot of well-groomed salespeople in black suits wearing faint smiles of martyrdom. <laughs> awesome. I, I've been one of those salespeople. It's, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. So- it was fun to walk around and observe, but, you know, as we were finishing up, we pa- we passed kind of this pop-up exhibit for Veuve Clicquot. Oh. And when they told us it was free, I was like, yes, we're going in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. First, a very quick mini history of the Grand Dame of Champagnes. And okay. Actually, Jen. Yes. Um, what do you know about Champagne from culinary school, if anything? Well, it's very little. Um, there was a whole class that I could have taken on um, wines and champagnes would have been covered in that class as right. well. I never got that class. It wasn't scheduled at a time I could take it. So my yeah. knowledge is very, very minimal. But okay. to be called champagne, mm-hmm. it must come from the grapes from the the area in France. Region, Champagne. The, the it's region. literally a region yeah. called Champagne, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it, you can't use the word Champagne. Yes. If it's not coming from grapes grown in that region, you cannot call it Champagne. Correct. And Is that the answer you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, that is the answer. And <laughs> the way, so it's interesting because the way I learned how to make fondue in France was to use Champagne. Oh, Yeah. Like some people use just general white wine, but I'm oh, I was taught like no, no no you need champagne specifically yeah, yeah. so anyway so here's the history Philippe okay. Cli- Philippe Clicquot founded his wine business in 1772 he was also a big textile magnet who owned a bunch of vineyards so interesting he, yeah he he uh, founded his Clicquot wine business shipping anywhere between four thousand to seven thousand bottles per year. And today, Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin ships 19 million bottles yeah. per year. Crazy. Yeah. Well, it, for, to me, for the year 1772, between four and 7,000 bottles a year sounds like a lot. Um, It's not bad. It's not big, though. It's a very niche kind of production. Okay. 
Okay. Um, it, it'd be the equivalent to like an Etsy vineyard, if you know oh what I mean. <laughs> you know, Got it. Or an Etsy soap maker, I guess. You know would- I'm sitting here doing math. I'm dividing that out by like, okay, so how many bottles would that be in like a month? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> his friend, Nicolas Ponsardin, also ran a successful textile company, and they decided to combine their textile businesses by marrying their kids to each other. Oh. Yeah. But apparently it was a fairly happy marriage. In 1798, Barbe Nicole Ponsardin married François Cricot, who soon took over the business from his father, who had retired. But in 1805, only seven years after marrying Barbe Nicole and at the age of only 30, François Cricot contracted a typhoid-like fever and died. Oh. I know. It's so sad. Now, 27-year-old Bob Nicole was a single mother to their six-year-old daughter named Clementine, and she was facing the demise of her husband and father-in-law's beloved wine business. Oh. Philippe, the father-in-law and founder, was going to sell off or dissolve the business, but instead, Bob Nicole took it over. (gasps) Oh, yeah. So, yeah, bitches, in 1805, when married women were still femme couvert, which is literally covered woman in the eyes of the law, and uh, in the field of wine and spirits, which is still today dominated by men, she was like, not today, motherfuckers, or perhaps more appropriately, pas encore, salaud. Okay. (laughs) Not yet, bastards. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Um, It turns out that being a widow was the key to her being able to take over the business as basically all over Europe at the time. Unmarried women and married women were not allowed to work, earn money, or attend schools without the consent of their father or husband. Even with consent, they couldn't vote or attend university. Right. However, a widow was free to do whatever she wanted, control property and have finances, run businesses and, you know... Um, she could do wow. it all except vote or attend university. This I'm is- wondering if that led to a whole lot of dead men. <laughs> I wondered the exact same you thing. You had the same thoughts? Exact same thought. But I was like, you know what? Hold it in. Hold it no, in. No, no, no. Because I was like, you know, it, it's really hard to prove poison in those days. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, so they could do everything except you know, voter attend university. And this is because, as we all know, the hymen and childbearing are directly connected to the brain in a woman. Aye. So long as a woman was either a commodity on the marriage market or married for the purpose of producing an heir, she was not allowed to do anything that might undermine her virginity, i.e. quality assurance for the lineage, or distract her from trying to get pregnant and raise kids and run the home. There were actually popular theories at the time that education decreased a woman's fertility. Oh my God. But a widow was used goods. While she might remarry if young enough to produce heirs, she was never the first choice. Also, interestingly enough, widows had quite a bit more socially sanctioned sexual freedom as well. Mm. It wasn't necessarily applauded, but it wasn't terribly shocking or shunworthy if she took a lover. Often, genteel widows were quietly known to provide the education of young men for their deflowering. Oh, shit. I know that's not a term used for men, but whatever, I do what I want. Oh, my God. They were also seen as socially acceptable friends with benefits partners for young men prior to marriage to provide an appropriate 
non-reproductive outlet for their desires. I, I, I'm so conflicted. I know. I'm, on one hand, I'm like, hell yeah, these women got all the benefits available to them. Yep. But the vein in which the or the mindset, yeah, that it's coming from is horrible. Yep. But they got all the benefits. But it's horrible. But it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Carry <Yep>. on. Carrying. <laughs> okay, back to Barb Nicole. She went to her father-in-law with a proposal to save the business. And interestingly enough, he said he would give it to her if she completed a proper apprenticeship with a winemaker, which she did. And in 1810, uh, she launched Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin. Okay. And remember, Ponsardin is her maiden name. So that bad bitch hyphenated. Damn. And you want to know how much more badass she was? Please. So this was during the time when Napoleon was throwing his wee weight around Europe. <laughs> um, he was my height or perhaps even a little shorter, just saying. Okay. Always the small ones you got to watch out for. Yep. <laughs> um, so he was doing this leading up to the big mistake of trying to invade Russia in winter. Moron. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, Tsar Alexander I had banned French products in protest of being invaded, which almost drove her brand new business to bankruptcy. Oh. But she was like, nah, even I know how this is going to go. Napoleon's going to lose because it's winter. And when he does, everyone is going to want to celebrate. <gasps> so she worked out a plan to sneak a huge shipment of almost 24,000 bottles of her champagne into Russia ahead of peace negotiations. Oh, damn. She's so fucking smart. Oh, the my plan God. was a success. And the brother of the Tsar said Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin would be the only champagne he would drink from now on. Damn! Celebrity endorsements, nothing is fucking new. Oh, I love this story. You said I was going to be raged by this one. I'm loving this one. Well, okay, there's the whole piece yeah. about the... the so from yeah. then on, she drove the business relentlessly towards international success. For example, they shipped 46,000 bottles in 1816, and by Damn. 1821, they shipped 280,000. <gasps> Holy crap! She That's... even realized she couldn't do it all herself and hired trustworthy men and built a management infrastructure that survived after her death in 1866 at the age of 89. Oh, I love her. And because I love you, yes, I took pictures of her ledgers. You did. They're um, not. Again, I apologize for the quality because I couldn't use flash, and right. you know these are behind glass, so it's a little hard yes. to get. But and it's French, <laughs> and it's in early nineteenth-century calligraphy. Yes. Which eventually your eyes get used to it and you can read it, but it takes like two hours and a headache to get there. Because <laughs> I've done I, it before, but it's but just this is this is a ledger. Yeah. I can tell you, you know, I I think I this can is almost like tell you what's going on here. Sales notes to each distributor, date shipped, and like, yeah. But this is the 19th century version of a spreadsheet, and all I ever want to do is make you happy. 
Yes, I love this so much. Yeah, the first one I'm looking at, uh, I don't know what these numbers are down the left because they, well, they, I can't see them well enough to make a solid guess, but they might be days. I believe they're dates. So there's a 29, a 30, a 30, and then there's a one and an REC, which I think means received. Okay. That would make sense. Yeah. Uh, reçu would be in what you would say in French for okay. received, but yeah. um, and then in the middle you have the the descriptions, notes, descriptions yeah. or itemizations, and then on the far right you have what I presume are amounts, either in francs or number of bottles. Right. We don't know if it's money or. Yeah, again, inventory. if you scroll to the next picture, it yes. might almost be more clear. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we have, again, we have down the left, we have these numbers. So the majority of these numbers on the left do look like dates, mm-hmm. but then you have some oddball numbers. Yeah. That, like, is that a 136 that I see? And there's a 115. So I, I'm not sure what the uh, right. numbers on the left are, but so it, it, it does still look could like be. There are order numbers. Yes. In it, the first it, column. Yeah. Um, I can't read any of this narrative, any of these descriptions. I the calligraphy as well as it being in French, I'm lost. Right. But, the the fact that there are numbers and itemizations, I'm like, yes, I know what this is. This is a this is an accounting ledger. Exactly. It, it's either inventory tracking or something. Oh, yeah, this is so nice. So now we're gonna finally get to why I included this in our hot drunk news roundup for the week, because okay. we've talked about shipwrecks. Especially specifically like in ancient times, like for the Antikythera machine, where we found remains of giant jugs or pithoi that had oil and wine. Oh, yeah. Well, the same goes for Veuve Clicquot. (gasps) And the next photo is of a bottle found in one such shipwreck. Dang. This is, okay, so it's a tiny bit blurry, but again, that's my fault because of yeah, the photography and lighting and yeah, and yeah. the glass. Um, it's a champagne bottle with the it, it's still sealed. Yep, perfectly the, the sealed. Actually, cork and all of the the mesh, the the wires that yep. hold the cork in, it's all intact. Now the label, there was a label that they were able to determine that there was a label affixed to it, but obviously that much time underwater ate away the paper. Gotcha. (laughs) So, but this is a bottle of Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin from 18, uh, somewhere in the 1840s. Wow. And it was found in a 2010 shipwreck. Well, it was found in 2010 in a shipwreck. Okay. Off the coast of Finland in the Baltic Sea. Wow. And divers recovered 168 bottles of champagne from the wreck, all intact, by the way, and they Dang. sent them back to France for evaluation. Okay. 46 of the bottles were identified as Veuve Clicquot. 
I'm now, fascinated with, they can tell there was a label, but the label is gone. How yeah. do they identify them? So some of them had markings on the cork still. Oh, okay. Um, Got it. Some of them had like microscopic bits of the paper still attached. Got and, it. you know, there were distinctive colors or whatever. Sure. Or maybe not at that point, because I think it was in the 1870s when they started using the yellow label. But um, they also were able to do just different tests and assessments. And okay. they, they found like four different brands, three or four different brands of champagne. So the local government of Åland in Finland um, actually got possession of all of these, and they're like civic funding. They auctioned oh, off the bottles. Damn. So one of the bottles uh, that was almost 200 years old sold for 30,000 euros. That sounds cheap. Uh, for, for that kind of an item, for that, I, I would have expected that to be a lot more. Yeah, see, I this is this is where I was like dragging with the research because I kept finding different numbers. Like one of them okay. said it was a hundred thousand euros. One said it was like a uh, hundred and fifty year old bottle, and I was like, you know what? Gotcha. I'm just going to split it down the middle and see what I can do here. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, it, these very old bottles went for a lot of money. Yeah. Got it. So now I'm going. Now I know what you're going to ask. Are those bottles drinkable? As I wanted to know if there's, did the stuff evaporate or the they, answer, was there still liquid in it? Yes. And it was drinkable. <gasps> because the wreck was 160 feet below the surface of the ocean with minimal light and a constant temperature between 35 and 39 Holy degrees Fahrenheit. Oh Basically, the God. bottles were stored in perfect conditions. <laughs> there was virtually no spoilage and it was, in fact, safe. To drink. Damn. So at the University of Bordeaux, where the samples were sent for analysis, chemical analysis, mm -hmm. uh, showed some rather interesting things. Okay. There was a lot higher levels of arsenic and copper. Oh, my God. Because of 19th century pesticides. What? Yep. Arsenic and copper were key components of 19th century vineyard pesticide. Damn. There were also uh, higher than normal today standards of iron and lead, probably from the iron nails in the barrels, and lead from the brass valve fittings used in winemaking at the time. Oh, okay. So forget the paint. Like, don't drink the champagne <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for lead poisoning. But the biggest surprise was the sugar content. Okay. These old bottles contained 150 milligrams of sugar per liter versus today's champagne, which is six to 10 milligrams per <gasps> liter. Wow. And, and that's, that's like a toned down version. Like the Veuve Clicquot's Russian market specifically preferred a 300 milligram per liter style champagne, which is like Coke, except Damn. clear. Oh, wow. And um, at 150 milligrams per liter, that makes it sweeter than most like Sauternes and dessert wines like Chateau Ychem and stuff like that today. Dang. Okay. Yeah. I can't handle those super sweet wines. I can't either. But also, interestingly enough, the alcohol content was a lot lower as well. Okay. So much higher sugar, lower alcohol content. 
I'm supposed to know the science behind that, but I my brain is just too fried to pull I that. I could have chased that rabbit hole, but I'm like, you know what? I'm not a chemist and I don't want to play one on the internet. <laughs> so the tasting notes for this particular shipment from a panel of assembled experts and also the principal researcher for the chemical analysis project who got a hundred micro microliters for a personal sample. Oh, wow. Yeah. They basically all got like a teeny, teeny, tiny sip. Yeah. that's When first first decanted and poured, the descriptions were animal notes, wet hair, and cheese. Oh, shit. (laughs) However, swirled and allowed to breathe for a few minutes, the champagne took on a whole new character. Grilled, spicy, smoky, leathery, accompanied by fruit and floral notes. Wow. And yeah, the principal researcher said that it was an incredible experience and the taste was amazing and it stayed in his mouth for three to four hours after. I (laughs) bet it did. Oh my God. (laughs) Now, we've talked about the 2,000-year-old bog butter challenge. Would you taste it? No, I was hoping you wouldn't bring up the bog butter. I knew you were going to, but I was hoping you wouldn't. Um, Okay, so bog butter, obviously I said no way, no way, no way. Even if it was deemed edible. Somebody's going to have to go back and listen and roll that tape and see what did I say. But I I feel like I, I came down on a no on the bog butter. And I, I think but, I came down on a yes, because even if it tastes like rat's ass, it's 2,000-year-old <laughs> butter. Of course, I'm going to try it. But, but this, have, this, you know, I'm, uh, are, we taste, it? are we tasting it before we know about the high <laughs> levels of iron and arsenic, or is it after? Let's assume you only get 100 microliters, which isn't enough to give you any kind of lead poisoning. Okay. Yes. I'm I'm trying it. Yes. Yes. Same here. I don't know why this is so different from the bog butter, but it is. Probably because there's something going on in the back of our heads like, well, the alcohol must have killed off most of the <laughs> shit that could kill us in there, right? And this was contained inside a glass vessel. Yeah. The, yeah. That gives me a little more security and confidence in you know it being uh, <laughs> whatever it, 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 be un, it could be unfounded <laughs> but i just have a, a higher comfort level knowing that this was in a glass bottle that was completely sealed well for- and also i mean you know it's it's not an animal byproduct there's that. It's going yeah. to give you botulism potentially. Right. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. I, I get the difference. But yeah, I would totally taste it. So I'm two for yeah. two on the tasting. <laughs> we're going to have I'm... to start a spreadsheet. Oh, of course we are. <laughs> yeah, because we're going to have to like, you know, update like the would you taste it challenge yeah. every time I find a food story because I have a couple of others that I found that I'm oh, like, yeah, we're going to have to Of course you do. All right. And also because, on a final note, because humans are weird, Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin was like, oh, this is interesting. And they and several other wine and champagne companies are looking into deep sea aging experiments now to create new and complex wine tastes. Oh, fun. 
put a four-decade pin in this because right. in 2014, Vuv submerged 300 bottles and 50 magnums of its champagne at the exact location <gasps> of the wreck. Wow. To study whether it matures differently than on land. It will be resurfaced in 40 years. Dang. 2054, baby. Put a pin in it. And compared <laughs> with another set of champagne aged underground at the same depth. Damn. 40 years. So the year 2054. I'm I'm not saying out loud how old I will be. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm still loud. coherent <laughs> at that point. Field trip. <laughs> Whatever. We're going to bust down the doors. We did a story on this back in 2022. That's right. <laughs> so finally, and this is the story that I, I think you really should have been drinking for. Uh-oh. Never gamble with the Romans because fuck them. Okay. So yeah, nothing is fucking new. For our final story, we're going to talk about why you shouldn't trust the Romans when they say the die is cast, which is what Gaius Julius Caesar Salad apparently said when he crossed the Rubicon River to invade what is today known as Italy. He was uh, bent on establishing himself on uh, as emperor. And depending on which source you go with, he either said it in Greek, anarifto kaibos, uh, or in Latin, alea iacta est. And sure. Gaius Julius Caesar Salad was a fucking cheater if there ever was. He's like, oh, me for emperor? No, no, I totally couldn't. I love the Republic. But psych, he totally could and just did a few years later. I remember this story. Yep. Yeah. So in 2000 CE, as in 22 years ago. <laughs> he loves saying that. <laughs> I just, I, you know, we're dealing with ancient versus modern. I have to keep it clear. Yes, yes. Julien Minet, an amateur archaeologist working with a Belgian archaeological nonprofit, discovered an unusual dye <gasps> at a dig near Abbe Lavier, or Old Abbey. Oh, okay. And I have a map. You do have a map. Let me blow it up on the screen. I have terrible eyesight. That's all right. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm just sticking it on there. Um, okay. So it is essentially west. I almost said left. Essentially west of Lux Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing that well? Luxembourg, yep. Luxembourg. I want to say it the way they say it. Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Luxembourg. It's way 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 northeast of paris i mean way 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 is <laughs> in european terms oh, yeah. <laughs> you can drive there in half a day oh okay so it's about a half a day northeast yeah. of paris okay and it's you it know it looks further than that to me but yeah because i don't have a Paris is like the size, yeah. France is the size of Texas, basically. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway. Yeah. Now, fast forward 22 years to the year of our Lord 2022 and to Thomas Dagneau uh, and his PhD dissertation, Games of Roman Gaul, which is what is they that? used to call France. Oh. Which is where okay. we get the term Gallic. Oh. And in his dissertation, he discusses not just this unusual die, but cheating in general in Roman times. 
Ooh, okay. Danio completing his PhD at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland. OG, we see you. Hi. <laughs> um, he studied 10,000 gambling objects in 23 French museums. Mm. And what he found was that it would basically be a real discovery verging on almost a miracle if any of the dice he studied weren't rigged in some way. <gasps> oh, my word. Now, it's not that the Romans endorsed cheating. Officially, mm -hmm. it was a major crime punishable by jail or even exile. Sure, sure. But let me put it this way. In excavations in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. 24 out of the 28 Roman dice discovered were found to be shaved. Loki was around. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, if everyone is cheating... Isn't that an ironically level playing field? Said Loki. <laughs> I don't see the lie. Loki is a truth teller. That's, yeah. that's the lie. Yeah. <laughs> so the Romans were big gamblers. Like all okay. social classes gambled often and as much as they could. Got it. Thus, with so much cash and valuables on the line, cheating was basically a necessity. Damn. Okay. In another article I read as part of putting this story together, we get another fabulous amateur archaeologist in Britain. Remember okay. the guy from Hadrian's Wall? Not the same guy, but like, love our amateur British archaeologists. Yes. So hello, yes. Mr. Stephen Pattison from Thirsk, Yorkshire. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> he and his brother are hobby metal detectorists. And I'm using the newspaper's term, which I trust is correct. Okay. But basically, they go around and they get permission to go into people's fields and use their metal detectors. And it's yeah. a fun hobby where they dig up all kinds of shit, like coins and all kinds of stuff. Um, last December, they came across an odd little bronze object in a field. Oh, and I included a picture of Mr. Pattinson, Pattison and his trusty metal detector. Hello. <laughs> He's so cute. He looks like just a regular guy that would live next door. Right? <laughs> Very Turns cool. out it was a bronze die that was, <gasps> you guessed wow. it, deliberately lopsided to favor either rolling a two or a six. Damn. And as it just so turns out, the Romans had a common dice game that involved rolling a two or a six. Of course they did. That's right. <laughs> so back to Denio's dissertation. Shaved dice were basically the rule, not the exception, but so were weighted dice. Okay. And this was done by putting a little bit of lead inside the dice, positioning it to favor a specific side. Ah, okay. All right. Now back to Belgium. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Remember that die found by Julien Minet? Yes. Turns out he or they accidentally broke it with a trowel when they discovered it. Oh. But for once, that's a good thing because oh. it was a hollow die filled with metal. They <gasps> analyzed it. They're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And they put it in a museum and cataloged it. And that was the end of it until Danio came along for his dissertation research. Okay. So Danio rediscovers this die and realizes it's incredibly unique because it's not filled with lead, but rather a liquid metal. <gasps> Jen, name the metal. Uh, uh, liquid uh, metal. It's in thermometers. Mercury. 
That's right. This die was so sophisticated that by holding it at a certain tilt prior to throwing, you could weight the die any way you fucking wanted. Oh, shit! And even if your opponent challenged you and rolled the die themselves to prove it was rigged, if they didn't hold it that same tilted way, they wouldn't get the same number. Oh, damn. I mean, that is the ultimate uh, combination of minimalism, efficiency, and good design for cheating. Yes. Like you don't need a separate weighted die for each number you try to get. Like you just have to have a little bit of dexterity, right? Oh, damn. Oh, I hate that I'm giving mad props. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So this is the broken up die. And Jen? Okay, so this looks like pieces of Legos. Metal, old, tarnished Legos. That's what this looks like. Yeah, so this, the die itself is not metal. But it looks, it ha- because of the age and yeah. the wear True. on it. It has a, in this picture, it has a metal type of look to it. Yeah. Maybe it's marble or stone. Um, I forget. Did I say what it was? Uh, You know what? Yeah. You you describe the picture. I will, I will go back to the link real quick. So you have like, this is the one that was broken and you Mm -hmm. can see there are three pieces of it and legit. It looks like three Lego pieces. It even has, you can see the the face of the five is the clearest and it has little bullseyes for each of the, the five points, three uh, concentric circles with a, or, uh, let me try this again. <laughs> each, each dot is concentric circles, two mm-hmm. rings with a dot in the middle. So you have three pieces to each dot. Mm-hmm. And then it's um, it looks like on one of these pieces, those m- might be it's hard to tell if it's like raised or etched in. I can't tell if it's it looks like it's etched in. Like, OK, yeah. So the, I found the material. It's bone. OK, so that would have been gonna be the next. It, yeah. OK, yeah. So it's etched in. Um, But I, I can't get past these just look like Lego pieces. Yeah. Well, and so if you look carefully on the uh, one that sort of shows the internal compartment where the mercury was, you can actually see almost a silvery residue. Yes. Around the inside of that compartment wall. Yeah. Yep. So as I was going through this, um, I came across a lot of interesting articles about the extreme measures casinos go to in order to preserve the purity of their dice. Okay. So in modern times, you mean? In modern times, yeah. So they have serial numbers on uh, each die. Uh, Wow. Yeah. So when you buy a game, your die are usually, they're slightly rounded on the corners, but casino dice are absolute uh, sharp corners. And the measurements are so specific that it has to be within point zero 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 five uh okay like a a margin of error yeah and even the felt on tables themselves has like microscopic little 
diamonds and triangles to ensure randomized tumbling. Mm. Like, you know, and some dye have secret glow-in-the-dark spots that will only be activated, you know, uh, when you put them under a light for an investigation and like, there's all kinds of stuff wow. that they do. Now, there was also a lot of discussion about, oh, well, casinos themselves use loaded dye and they have cheating on the machines and blah, blah, mm. blah. But it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense because that's such a huge catastrophic risk to their business. Right. Like one casino found with one secret button, like, are they really going to you know, risk their entire business reputation and their economic future on a tooth, like trying to get the better of you on a $2,000 bet. Right. I mean, casino gambling by its very nature favors the house. Exactly. So why worry? Because the house always wins. Right. Now, I did find Mm -hmm. um, there was a couple back in 2011 who won $700,000 at the Win Las Vegas craps table. Oh. Now, craps is the only casino dice game where the players actually get to handle the dice. Ooh, okay. So, I've never been to a casino, so this is all. I, I've only, so I only movies. know what I see in movies and TV. Yeah, yeah. I've been to a couple. Um, I mean, it's not my bag. I don't want to yuck someone else's yum. It's just, to me, it's like, okay, it's interesting. It's more interesting to watch the people. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so- Turns out they were accused of sliding the dice, which is you use a sleight of hand to send both or generally just one. Um, So you send one die tumbling and keep the other die flat, but it spins on its flat side. So your aim is to control the flat die and keep it on that number, but the spin on the flat die creates an optical illusion and the other die that is rolling and tumbling is meant to be a distraction. I can, I see it. I get it. Yeah. And obviously we know th- about this story because the couple was caught. Ha! Damn! I also came across, uh, while researching the story, a website where you can buy Roman dice. Oh. Okay. I don't know why you would want to spend 225 euros to buy... Uh, 2,000-year-old cheating dice. Right. Personally, I'll just buy a dollar store version and take my nail file to it. But whatever, I'll include the link. And in general, even though it seems like cheaters do prosper, hello, corporations and executives who pay no fucking taxes, in the long run, the house, in this case, history, motherfuckers, always wins. Yes. I mean, after all, just look at the Romans. Ugh. Fuck Fuck the Romans. Romans. The fucking end. Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. That was not as rage-inducing as I thought you were going to throw at me. (laughs) But, (laughs) well, I mean, the bar is pretty high this week. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. The bar is high this week. Yeah. So, um, but this was fun. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. I might have to, like lock my laptop and give it to my husband so that I can go have a drink and like you, hand you over my phone. Need to give him your phone too. Yeah. <laughs> hand him my phone, all electronic devices. Because I know as soon as I start drinking, I will start stewing on this 
fiasco. And the Roman cheating thing doesn't help, does it? No. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) How about you? You did a whole lot of talking, so I can't imagine you've gotten yourself drunk or even I'm not drunk. Um, You know, I did manage to finish my glass, but that's just, that's pre-gaming for tonight. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to First Friday um, over here in my neighborhood. Um, Should be fun. First, the first first Friday since COVID that I've been to. So yeah, woohoo! We have first Fridays in Raleigh as well, yeah. Raleigh, North Carolina. We have downtown. Um, mm-hmm. Violet and I went to the first Friday last year in December, and it's just all Christmas. We love it. Yeah. Um, so we're. I'm anticipating it's all Christmas yeah. now. I mean, there was all the Christmas, sh- like ho- all the Halloween shit was like in clearance on October 30th. I was like, really, people? Oh yeah, yeah. What about us at the last minute? but so next week yes i will be celebrating norse greek vember oh okay we tried this last year yes but we did greek norse vember okay oh why does it have to be norse vember i'm gonna go my own way and say norse greek (laughs) vember okay i do what i want I'm going to have something Norse, something Greek, <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's, it's, going, it's going to be uh, a car crash on the side of the road that you can't turn away from. There you go. So, <laughs> Sounds perfect. Yep. In the meantime, subscribe yourselves to our social media scrolls. We're on Instagram at Drunk Mythology Gals. We are on Twitter at Drunk Myth Gals. We're on Facebook and actually... In addition to Facebook, we're also on TikTok. They're both the same Drunk Mythology Gals. Yes. We're also on the web at drunkmythologygals.com. We where, have merch. Uh, we have merch. Um, we will be doing a the annual end of the year holiday mug, commemorative yep. mug for the year that popped in my head. Um, I try to post these pictures that Kate puts in our notes. I try to get them up there on the website under the not to scale. I'm so behind. That's all right. Um, But also this weekend, I will be working on putting up the uh, Drunk Dracula Gals commemorative poster and mug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there we go. So yeah, uh, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Drunk Mythology Gals, where we do deep dives into all kinds of off the wall topics. We do Lit Crit Hour, where if you love Drunk Dracula Gals, you're going to love Lit Crit Hour. Oh, yeah. Yep. Or you can try sending us an email. Ah, I just knocked my pen. <laughs> um, <laughs> gals at drunkmythologygals.com. Our friend Frederick, he can tell you it takes us a while to respond, but eventually we do. <laughs> we'll get back to you before the end of the year. Oh, wait, that's putting too much time pressure on us. <laughs> and special thanks to Sound Effects Kim for putting the top spin on our sound. And thanks again to all of you for joining us. Please subscribe, leave a rating or review, and tell your friends and family about us, especially if they're like, hey, I bought this bottle of wine 20 years ago. It's been sitting in a box in my basement. You want to taste? it it's right next to some butter that i got back then too (laughs) nope finally always remember if the gods can behave badly then so can you